I've been told the most popular time of the year for a wedding is the last weekend in June. This weekend. And since Calvary Chapel had a big wedding this weekend, JP and Stephanie got hitched. I thought this morning that I would speak on marriage. That is, Ezekiel's marriage. And like everything else in Ezekiel's life, it took a strange twist. The prophet Ezekiel, he had a bizarre calling. Let's begin reading here in Ezekiel chapter 24 and in So the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died, and the next morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things signify to us, that you behave so? Then I answered them, the word of the Lord came to me saying, speak to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, your arrogant boast, the desire of your eyes, the delight of your soul, and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword, and you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turban shall be on your heads, and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities, and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you. According to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. It seems according to today's styles, see-through items have become quite the rage. There are all kinds of cool see-through stuff. Brace yourself for a few examples. There are some see-through hats and see-through shoes, even some see-through Converse All-Star sneakers. There's a see-through purse, a see-through tent, a see-through car, no less, even a see-through canoe, which to me would be a lot of fun if you were paddling around in some clear water. There's also a see-through kitchen which means you ladies would have to do your dishes with a see-through toaster for that see-through kitchen, a see-through dryer, a see-through speaker, both see-through keyboards and skateboards, see-through pool tables and swimming pools. There's also see-through bathrooms and bathtubs. But there's one transparent item that I just don't get. I don't understand this. It's a see-through toilet. I mean, who wants to see through their toilet? You should just flush that image right out of your mind. But what if I told you this morning that we were going to talk about see-through Christians and see-through marriages? 
For I believe that every Christian, as well as every Christian marriage, should be see-through. When someone looks at your life or your marriage, their eyes shouldn't just stop with you or with you and your spouse. No, they should get a glimpse of what's behind and beyond that relationship, what makes you and your marriage tick. This is how the Apostle Paul looked at Christian marriage. He saw through the relationship of a husband and wife to the relationship of Christ and his church. This is what he writes in the book of Ephesians. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Paul envisioned marriage as a depiction of the relationship between Christ and the church. When he looked at a husband and a wife, he saw through them to something beyond. As a matter of fact, this was true of Ezekiel's whole life and ministry. In multiple ways, at multiple times, he was called to live out something beyond the prima facie meaning of his actions. That word prima facie, it's a legal term. It means at first face or at first look or first glance. The prophet was always pointing to an understanding that was bigger and higher and beyond just the surface appearance of what was going on in his life. Notice what God says to the people about his prophet in verse 24. Thus Ezekiel is a sign to you. According to all that he has done, you shall do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. Ezekiel lived not only his life, but his marriage as a signpost for God. And this is why Ezekiel gets nicknamed the stuntman of the Bible. For he was always acting out these living parables. God would command Ezekiel to perform strange antics. They were like little skits with spiritual meaning. Divine dramas, we could call them. It was God's way of conveying relevant truths to his people Israel. Reminds me of Pastor Tim Keller. When God called him to plant a church in New York City, he knew it would require great effort. Some tremendous sacrifices would have to be made. When he and his wife moved to New York, they made a deal. She would give him three years of long nights and lonely evenings to do what he needed to do. But after those three years, she expected for him to settle into a more manageable and a more family-friendly routine. Of course, the three years came and went, and this young pastor was still committed to his frantic pace. Nothing had really changed. Until one day, he came home took off his jacket, and he heard a crashing from the patio outside, a crashing sound. He walked outside, and there he found his wife sitting there with a hammer, smashing her wedding china. He thought she'd snapped. Honey, what are you doing? She answered him. You aren't listening to me. You don't see how you're destroying our marriage. 
I don't know how else to get through to you. Then she took a hammer and she smashed the third expensive saucer. Well, Keller finally sat down and he pleaded. He said, okay, I'm listening. You got my attention. I'm listening. Well, as she talked, he realized that she was fine. She spoke passionately, but with purpose, he realized that he needed to pay attention to her advice and to slow his life down. Well, when the tension subsided, Keller did confess. He said, wow, honey, I thought you were having an emotional meltdown there for a second. His wife grinned. No, I broke three cups years ago, so I had three saucers I didn't need. I'm glad it didn't take a fourth. But that's true for all of us. At times we need something dramatic, don't we? Something out of the ordinary to alert us to our indifference, to grab our attention. And this is how God used his prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was like a hammer smashing Israel's expensive china. God called him to some strange assignments. In chapter 4, Ezekiel is told to lie on his left side 390 days for the 390 years of the northern kingdom's rebellion. Then, as if it wasn't time to get up and stretch, he was told to roll over on his right side and lie there another 40 days as a symbol of Judah's 40 years of rebellion. At the same time he was lying on his side, he was told to take toy soldiers in a clay model of Jerusalem and act out the coming siege. And that was just one of many skits God called him to perform. There was a time when he dug a hole in the wall of his house and acted like he was escaping the city. Another time he packed up and he moved out of his own house every morning in order to show the people that they would be moving soon. To accentuate what life would be like in a city under siege, Ezekiel was even called to wartime rations. And he was to cook them over human waste. Imagine the Jews at the time thinking, man, what is this strange prophet up to now? It's not enough to have to listen to his sermons. We have to see them. Now we have to smell them. Apparently, some of Ezekiel's sermons must have been real stinkers. Ezekiel was told to take a sharp sword. We're talking a battle sword now and shave his head with it and his beard. Imagine the nicks and cuts the man suffered. I cut up my face with a dull razor blade. I can't imagine trying to shave the hair on my head and my beard with a cumbersome sword. Yet God was speaking through Ezekiel's drama. God had tired of his people's brazen idolatry. He was weary of their unfaithfulness, and he was about to pull out his sword of judgment against Jerusalem. In fact, earlier in chapter 24, Ezekiel is called on to act out another drama. God tells him to put on a pot of boiling water, stoke the fire hotter and hotter, then put some choice cuts of meat into the pot. Ezekiel is literally cooking up a sermon for the people of Judah. And it didn't take long for the fats and the oils and the blood in the meat to sort of rise to the surface of the stew. That's when God makes his point in verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, that is Jerusalem, to the pot whose scum is in it and whose scum is not gone from it. Now, can you think of a more fitting symbol for sin than scum? 
God and Ezekiel were illustrating that Jerusalem was brewing up some sin. And these kinds of messages were commonplace in Ezekiel's ministry. It was as if the people had become so hard-hearted, they were immune to typical sermons. God, through Ezekiel, resorted to circus theatrics. Desperate times call for desperate tactics. Maybe if the man of God lit his hair on fire and ran through the town square, people might pay attention to what he had to say. I mean, that was the idea. Ezekiel was odd for God. But every offbeat task God called Ezekiel to do pales in comparison to what happens now in chapter 24. In verse 15 we read, Also the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I will take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Notice God refers to Ezekiel's wife as the desire of his eyes. I think that's beautiful. That's a bit romantic if you ask me. Kind of a romantic idiom there that perhaps characterizes their love and their marriage. You know, it could have been love at first sight for Mr. and Mrs. Ezekiel. I mean, the moment he laid his eyes on this gal, he knew she was for him. Understand, his wife became his standard for beauty. Not the supermodels, but his wife is what constituted beauty for Ezekiel. She was his perfect ten. She was the desire of his eyes. Recall, this was how Adam felt about his wife Eve. God perfectly designed Eve for Adam. He even delivered her to him. God walked Eve down the aisle. And when Adam had laid his eyes on Eve... She too became the desire of his eyes. He was blown away. Someone has suggested Adam kind of leaned over and whispered to Eve, Baby, you're the only one in the world for me. (laughs) And she was, literally and figuratively. You know, we usually think of Eve as a knockout. Long legs, hourglass figure, shapely, pretty features. But who's to say? Who's to say Eve wasn't bow-legged, five-foot-tall, and 400 pounds? Who's to say? At that point, Adam's only standard of beauty was his wife. His only comparison was an animal. An aardvark or a chimpanzee. And I don't care how ugly a woman might look compared to an alligator. She's beautiful. It's amazing how over time standards of beauty change and evolve. What society deems attractive today isn't the standard held in the 1920s or even the 1520s. Beauty truly is in the eye of the beholder. Pretty is relative. And all married men need to possess this kind of relativity. Every man sets his own standard for beauty. And if you're married, you need to make your wife the measure, not the office girl, not the mom of the kid on your baseball team, not the little cutie at church, and certainly not a porno snapshot. See, here's how a lot of single men think. Until I find a wife, I'll just enjoy a few photos. Once I get the wife, I'll lose the pictures. 
Well, I hate to tell you, it's not that easy. When the wife comes, you still have the pictures. Maybe not under your bed or on your computer, but pornographic images can remain lodged in your mind for years and can haunt a marriage. How does a real wife compete with make-believe? I don't care if your wife was Miss America. She can't compete with a digitally enhanced Photoshop airbrush picture of a teenage girl half her age. Men, we need to be careful not to allow our eyes to wander. As we talked about last week, a manly man seizes dominion. He takes charge. He builds into his family and into his marriage. And the first place he takes responsibility is in his own thought life. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. A real man stays focused on and committed to his wife. She is his only standard for beauty and sexy. If your wife is tall, then sexy to you is tall. If she has a big nose, you're into big noses. If she's blonde, well then pretty to you is blonde. Unless she changes her hair color next week, and if that happens, read the bottle. That's what you're into now. I mean, here's my perfect 10. She's five foot four, blah, 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 pounds, short blonde hair, cute little nose, little north of 39, and she's got some really nice legs. And I come home to that woman every night. Every man should think his wife is the world's prettiest woman. I love the illustration of a little boy who went to the department store to buy his mom a birthday present. Somehow he got twisted around and he ended up in the clothing department. We asked the clerk to help him pick out something for his mom. The lady said, well, what size is she? He said, I don't know, but my mom's perfect. The clerk handed the boy a size 8 blouse. Well, the next day, a lady walked up to the counter to return a blouse. It seems the perfect mom swapped the size 8 for an extra large. But she was perfect in her son's eyes. And this should be every husband's outlook. Like Ezekiel, let's make our wives the desire of our eyes. But in verse 15, God says that he is going to take away Mrs. Ezekiel from her husband. Boom! With one stroke. The implication is that Ezekiel's otherwise healthy wife is going to die suddenly. Was it a literal stroke? Perhaps a heart attack, maybe an accident. We're not told. I like to think that she passed calmly in her sleep. But in the sovereign and mysterious counsels of God, the father saw fit to take from Ezekiel his own wife. Now here's what was happening on the national scene. The culmination of nearly a thousand years of rebellion and idolatry was coming down on the heads of the Hebrews. God had raised up the Babylonian army to besiege Jerusalem and to judge his people. For all intents and purposes, in God's heart, he was about to watch his wife, Judah, die a horrible death. Notice in verse 21, God refers to the temple with the same term he used for Ezekiel's wife. He calls it the desire of your eyes. 
Over the centuries, the temple had been as precious and loved by the Jews as Ezekiel's wife had been to him. It crushed their heart and God's to see the temple ransacked by the enemy. And as a sign to the nation, Ezekiel's wife dies on the very day this terrible siege of Jerusalem begins. In essence, two deaths occurred on the exact same date. What a sermon illustration. Ezekiel really has no choice, but in his heart, he's being asked to put God's purposes before his own spouse. And though it hurts, and though I'm sure he had questions, nevertheless, he cooperates. Would you do the same? What if God purposed for your spouse to die as a sign to the nation? Would you be as compliant? This is where being a prophet of God was not exactly profitable. It was downright painful. Oh, it's easy to serve God when doing so benefits us. But what if we're called on to make some kind of sacrifice? Are we willing to put our allegiance to God ahead of our own family affections? What a tough ordeal for the Ezekiel family to endure. In our day and age, Christians are weathering a full-scale attack on biblical marriage and family. And in response, we exhort each other to focus on our families. Rightly so. We need to prioritize marriage and families. But more important than your love and loyalty to either your spouse or your kids is your allegiance to God. In our frantic and guilt-induced attempts not to overlook our families, sometimes we go overboard. You can turn family into an idol. I know parents who have no life. Everything revolves around their kids. They abort their duties at church. They waste countless hours. They even take time off from work. So Susie doesn't miss that dance recital. And Johnny gets to his umpteenth soccer tournament. Trust me, I'm not throwing stones. Kathy and I made sure that we carted our kids all over creation as well. But it was vital that my kids knew there was someone bigger than them in their parents' life. We bow to Jesus, not our kids. Even our precious kids come in second to Jesus. Years ago, Christian musician Keith Green, he sang a challenging song, where he pledged it all to the gospel. In the first stanza, he, he, he sings, I won't sing it, but he sings. I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. Though our love each passing day just seems to grow. As I told her when we wed, I'd surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. And then he sings the second stanza. I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. Though he's kicked and beaten, ridiculed and scorned, I will teach him to rejoice and lift a thankful, praising voice and to be like him who bore the nail and crown of thorns. You don't hear that kind of sentiment much in church today, do you? Churchgoers seem to think Jesus and church exist to serve and make their families better rather than their family existing to serve Jesus and church. Hey, but what did Jesus himself teach us? Well, in Luke chapter 9, a man came to Jesus and asked to be his disciple. 
He said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. He was focusing on his family. Following Jesus surely won't interfere with family. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, to be a disciple of Jesus, loyalty to your Lord has to supersede even family sentimentality. In Luke 14, verse 25, Jesus teaches a similar lesson. He uses a hyperbole, a figure of speech. He exaggerates for emphasis. He says, he turned and said to the multitudes, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now certainly, Jesus is advocating literal hatred for our families. In other places, we're taught to love our families. But what he's teaching us is that our love for father and mother, even wife and children, should look like hate when placed up against our love for Jesus. Jesus tolerates no rival affections. Our relationship with Jesus should be paramount. It should tower over other relationships. Reminds me of George Keller of Washington State. An arsonist in his area had done millions of dollars in damage. When the police released a profile of the serial arsonist, George noticed that it looked a lot like his son. He reported his suspicions to the police and he worked with authorities to eventually convict his own son, Paul. At the trial, George was choking back tears as he told a reporter, He's our son. And we will love, support, and pray for him. We will not desert him. But you've got to do what's right. And sometimes as Christians, what's right isn't necessarily what's comfortable. Most of the time, Christian discipleship and family devotion run hand in hand. But there are moments when we have to choose. Ezekiel loved his wife, but he loved God more. And if God wanted to take his wife to say something to his bride, the nation Israel, then so be it. I've heard that when you go to an auction to make a purchase, you should always set your upper limit beforehand. You should know how much you'll bid, how high you'll go. I mean, you don't want to get caught up in the moment and blow your budget. And there are some people who use this same tactic in their relationship with God. They've set an upper limit. They'll only go so far. That was not Ezekiel. God expected from him a level of commitment he had never imagined. He wasn't even given a heads up to prepare himself. God sprung this on Ezekiel. But when the time came, he rose to the challenge. I'm sure losing a spouse is a sacrificial act few of us have ever considered. Never in our wildest dreams have we thought that God might take our spouse as some sign. Reminds me of the newlywed wife who called the pastor. She was crying profusely. She said, oh, pastor, Bob and I, we had our first fight. It was awful. What am I going to do now? The pastor tried to calm her. He said, Joanne, it's okay. Every marriage eventually has its first fight. It's only natural. It's going to be okay. Joanna replied, oh, I know, I know, but... What am I supposed to do with the body? (laughs) 
Ladies, maybe there's been times when you thought of sending your husband to meet his maker. You just never thought God would do it himself. And I'm not suggesting he will. What happened to Ezekiel was a rarity. Only once in the Bible do we find such a scenario, Ezekiel chapter 24. See, here's the rule when it comes to hermeneutics. And some of you might ask, Herman who? Hermeneutics is the study of how to apply the Bible. And one rule is this. Don't take the oddball case and apply it universally. Just because Elijah was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot doesn't mean that a fiery chariot is coming for you. Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, but that doesn't mean that you'll exit eternal hills over here after four days. And the fact that Isaiah was told to walk around Jerusalem naked for three and a half years as a sign to his people doesn't mean going naked to Snellville days will be all seen by a sign for you. A sign you're crazy need to be locked up maybe, but not a sign for God. In other words, don't apply the special case to all people at all times. But what we can do is to examine these oddities for principles that do apply in our common situations. For example, Elijah was taken to heaven, and that's where we're headed. Aren't you glad? The grave couldn't hold Lazarus, and he won't be able to hold us. We'll rise too when Jesus says so. And Isaiah told the people around him the naked truth, which is what we also need to do with the people around us. We need to tell them the truth. And if we take this approach to Mr. and Mrs. Ezekiel's marriage, here's what we glean. It was see-through. By looking at their marriage, you could see through it to the spiritual truths that God was choosing to display. And God wants every marriage to be see-through. My wife and I are hunkered down here on this earth. We're saddled with real, nitty-gritty, everyday duties. But hopefully, if you look closely at my family life, you should be able to see through it to the spiritual realities that are just beyond. Hopefully, you'll see that I love my wife like Christ loves the church. You'll see that she follows Christ by following me. That we represent God to our kids and have set them on a Godward trajectory. German pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, Marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power, for it is God's holy ordinance. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world, only the heaven of your happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status. It is an office. Bonhoeffer was clear, more is at stake in a marriage than just the happiness of its participants. God wants the world to see through your relationship to the spiritual realities that a Christian marriage illustrates. Does your marriage and family have an ulterior motive? Do you want the world to see Jesus through you and yours, especially in the very heart of your home? Well, it's interesting, you would think that the loss of his wife would be tough enough on Ezekiel. But that's not the only burden the prophet was called on to bear. 
God's instructions to him continue in verse 16. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh in silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. Imagine God taking your wife, then you hearing the words, sigh in silence. God tells Ezekiel he can cry and mourn, but not in front of the people. Not where anyone can hear him. In Ezekiel's day, public displays of bereavement were common. In fact, the Jews would hire professional mourners to help with the expected grief. But this was all forbidden to Ezekiel. God tells him not to uncover his head. Don't take off your sandals. Don't eat the food associated with funerals. Don't start eating casseroles, Ezekiel. The modern equivalent would be to avoid the wake. Don't cry at the funeral. Just get dressed up, man, and go about your normal duty as if nothing had happened. And notice what Ezekiel does. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And the next morning, I did as I was commanded. Wow. This is tough stuff. And it echoes what God often asks of us. Like Ezekiel, we are ambassadors for Christ. That means that our job is to represent Christ's feelings, not our own. And at times, this involves suppressing our own emotions. Hey, with some people, I would like to lash out. I'd really like to give them a piece of my mind. But God is patient with those people. He's loving towards them. I need to shut up. At other times, I'd like to celebrate with my friends. But God isn't pleased over what's happening. It would be wrong for me to party with the culprits. I would misrepresent God. Often, as God's representatives, we have to muzzle our own feelings. Reflect how God feels, not how we feel. And this is our job even in a politically correct world. I hope you realize people at the office are watching you. They know you're a Christian. And when someone tells a dirty joke, they look to see if you laugh. When Betty announces her engagement to Lucy, co-workers are going to look. They're going to look at you to see if you approve. This is why we need to be see-through. So that when folks look at us, they can see through our actions and our reactions and know the mind of Christ. Even in the midst of Ezekiel's personal grief, this was his desire. Thus he says, I did as I was commanded. There's a walkway around Tiananmen Mountain in south central China. It's a three and a half foot path suspended 4,000 feet above the valley below. But what makes this path so terrifying is that it's see-through. It has a glass bottom. When people see through the walkway, they get scared. And this can happen to people who don't have your faith. They see through your life 
and they see what makes you tick, and they realize there is a steep drop-off between your faith and theirs. Hey, that's okay. Understand, your job isn't to make people comfortable. Your job is to point people to the truth. Your friends won't aspire to great heights if they think everybody lives in the valley with them. We need to show them a higher path. Recall Ezekiel was a contemporary of another Hebrew prophet, a man named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And in contrast to Ezekiel, when Jeremiah heard that the city was destroyed, he cried, he wept. And he needed to. For the demise of Jerusalem grieved God. Jeremiah's weeping reflected God's broken heart. Yet God told Ezekiel not to shed a tear. Jerusalem was receiving her just reward, and God didn't want anyone to assume that his his judgments weren't righteous. You know, it's interesting. It took the approach of both men to reveal the totality of God's heart. The Lord was just and right in all his judgments, as Ezekiel showed, but they saw through Jeremiah's tears that God was also brokenhearted over their sin. It was strategic that both men did as they were commanded. Thus their friends and peers were able to see through them to God. Which brings us full circle this morning. Are you a see-through Christian? Is your marriage a see-through marriage? Can people look through your life and see that it's governed by God? The people see through your marriage to the biblical foundation on which it's built. See, there's more to life and marriage than just your own happiness. Let's live a see-through life that points people to what's beyond, to why we do what we do. Let's you and I point people to Jesus.